It is fortuitous that this exhibition is taking place in an election year, that we are seeing this great assembly of popular, even, I hate to use the word, but there you are, iconic Australian images at a time when the nation is debating the definition of Australian values. The continuing significance of these paintings, and in particular of the great national pictures, such as Shearing the Rams, in the construction of what it means to be Australian, is clearly evident in their quotation by contemporary artists, in works which, in the approved postmodern style, point to various, as Terry Smith says, relevant and conspicuous absences in the originals. So I begin with Greg Leong's, or a detail of Greg Leong's recent singing history quilt for new Chinese Australians, a Shearing the Rams-inspired textile work which actually incorporates a recording of the artist singing Click Go the Shears in Cantonese. <laughs> Leong alerts us not only to the general marginalisation of Asians in the national cultural canon, but also to the particular historical circumstances of Chinese Australians in the late 19th century. While the famous Jackie Howe shore 321 sheep in 8 hours 40 minutes at Alice Downs Station in 1892, a more usual solid daily tally for a hand shearer was around 100. Contemporary shearer's jargon included the sardonic Chinaman's 100, meaning only 50. And while it displays a dismissive racial prejudice, the term does indicate that Chinese labour evidently formed a noticeable part of the pastoral workforce and of the national population as a whole. The 40-odd thousand Chinese then living in the Australian colonies made up more than 3% of the total population. Yet, in the closing decades of the century, popular and official xenophobia exemplified in the 1888 Intercolonial Conference on the Chinese Question in, and the Afghan crisis of the same year when Chinese immigrants were denied entry, in Banjo Patterson's notorious statement that, quote, no nigger, no Chinaman, no Lascar, no Kanaka, no purveyor of cheap coloured labour is an Australian, and finally, in the Immigration Restriction Act, the White Australia policy, squeezed them out of the country and out of the picture. There's an Australian value for you. Photographer Diane Jones's pastiche of Shearing the Rams places members of her Nyungar family in the Brocklesby shed, introducing another excluded or marginalised presence that of Aboriginal Australians. That there were black men working the nation's shearing sheds in Roberts's time is not only logical in terms of Aboriginal dem demography, but is also specifically attested to by William Hatherell's shearing illustration in Castle's picturesque Australia. However, by and large, the Aboriginal presence in Australian art at this time is restricted to anthropology or allegory or occasional and most often satiric social commentary. While in the Riverina working on Shearing the Rams, Roberts did paint Gubby Wellington, who he described as the last black of the Murray River tribe, as well as the well-known portrait of Charlie Turner, 
with his eyes upturned like an El Greco saint or a vaudeville Negro minstrel. But both these paintings and the slightly later Queensland Aboriginal subjects were intended by Roberts, as he later said, as an interesting record of a passing race. Certainly not as figures to be integrated into the image, let alone the polity of the emerging nation. That's another Australian value. Pam Debenham's girl ringer in Strong Feminine Labour articulates the problem of ducks on the boards, the exclusion of women from the shearing shed of national mythology. Even though these paintings are from a time of pronounced feminist activity, the Australian Women's Suffrage Society was established in 1889, they maintained the prejudice of the 19th century patriarchy that the work of the frontier was men's work. Despite Roberts's patriotically titled An Australian Native being a portrait of a woman, a white woman that is, despite Susan Bourne managing to sneak into the cast of Shearing the Rams in the guise of a tar boy, McCubbin's national pictures, for example, clearly sustain the image of woman stoically accepting the burdens of motherhood, fatigue and grief. More Australian values there. There is one more post-colonial borrowing that I wish to mention today because it's currently on view in Melbourne at the Centre for Contemporary Photography. In Anza Halka's The Card Player, a portrait of her mother playing solitaire, there appears on the wall behind her a framed print of McCubbin's Down on His Luck. A major theme of Zahalka's work is the representation of modern Australia as a multicultural nation. And this work, with its shalom-inscribed letter rack, clearly signals and celebrates the artist's mother's Jewishness. But it also actively protests the Anglo hegemony. In the McCubbin print, the swagman has been taken out. Admittedly, the erasure is a little cloudy, but the work does date from 1988, when techniques of digital manipulation were relatively unsophisticated. Zahalka uses the reverse strategy to the other artists I have mentioned. She doesn't put the Jewess in the landscape. She takes the Anglo-Celtic bloke out. (laughs) And with this image of the vacated bush, it is probably appropriate that I step down from my anachronistic, latte-drinking, postmodernist soapbox and address the national pictures of Roberts, McCubbin and Streeton in their own 19th century context when the most important values were tonal. Terry Lane was recently quoted in The Age as saying, We are not using the term Heidelberg School anymore. We are trying to throttle it off. The world will be a better place for it if we are successful. (laughs) Hear, hear, say I. It would certainly make things easier for Australian art historians moving outside their discipline or their hemisphere, where there can be confusion with the other Heidelberg school, the circle of late 19th century German neo-Kantian social philosophers around Wilhelm Windelbund and Heinrich Rickert. However... While I can certainly understand the marketing imperatives which underpin the titling of the current exhibition, 
And while historical usage and the limits of popular understanding make it highly unlikely that my bid will be successful, I would like this afternoon to make a proposal of Bernard Smithian audacity that the work of Roberts, Streeton, McCubbin et al. be redesignated not Australian Impressionism, but Australian Naturalism, or possibly even the Australian Naturalesque. <laughs> I admit that Naturalism is not a well-recognised art historical brand. The descriptor never got the wide purchase of Impressionism or Aestheticism or the American term Tonalism. Because of their strong debt to the previous generation, to Jean-François Mignet and Gustave Courbet, sometimes the late 19th century European ruralist painters are also referred to as realists. Like their Australian counterparts, the best-known British practitioners of the style were grouped together on the basis of their regional locations, the Newlands, Newland and St Ives schools in Cornwall and Scotland's Glasgow boys. Like the Australians, they too went to the beach. And in the critical discourse of the day, certainly in the journals that the Australian naturalists were reading, the Magazine of Art, the Art Journal, Harper's and so on, the style is often referred to simply as modern art. Naturalism is, it seems, a largely retrospective appellation. But the work itself was very much about the here and now, Developed in the 1870s and 1880s and seen most clearly in the work of the young and brilliant Jules Bastien Lepage, naturalism was a synthesis of traditional academic drawing and modelling, plein air tonal realist atmosphere, and something of the brightness, brevity, and contemporary subject matter of Degas' Impressionism and Whistler's aestheticism. Part of the naturalist approach was a close attention to modern life, and in particular to the working people of rural France. Bastien Lepage himself spent most of his career painting in and around his home village of Donvilliers in Lorraine, and his British followers also concentrated their focus on provincial life and labour. Like the realists of the previous generation, these artists sought to represent contemporary social conditions not as picturesque or comic genre, but with, as one British critic put it, all the eloquent sincerity, dignified solemnity and true heroic melancholy formerly reserved for history painting. In part, the naturalists achieved this ambition by the rejection of the urban, eschewing the landscape of middle-class pleasure that produced the more racy, if not downright scandalous, elements of still-radical French Impressionism. In its place, they presented a landscape of labour. Pictures of Breton peasants and Cornish fishermen and Berwickshire hinds, people whose daily activities were certainly current, but also somehow timeless. In the relatively short journey, the train journey to the end of the line, from city studios and boulevards to country fields and fishing villages, space and time were collapsed. Naturalism found history in the present. This certainly sounds like our boys, doesn't it? Yet although the French connection has been pointed out in almost all writings on late 19th century Australian painting, and Tim Bonnyhady and Lee Asprey are particularly attentive, 
and I have to say that Gerard Vaughan's very much more recent contribution must also be acknowledged, there has, to my knowledge, been no detailed or sustained investigation of the strong links between Australian naturalism and its European models. There's certainly no shortage of suggestive material. Initially, there was Robert's exposure to the movement during his four years in London, not only through Royal Academy, Paris Salon and Grosvenor Gallery exhibitions, but also through his acquaintance with George Clawson and through fellow students' visits to the Cornwall artists' colonies. Both J.S. MacDonald and Madame Good would later testify to Robert's having made in London a conscious decision to take Lepage as his model. There was the arrival in Melbourne of Arthur Lorero, a fellow student of Lepage who showed French-style naturalist works from the mid-1880s. There were articles and reproductions in the art magazines, and there was Henri Thurier's monograph on Lepage, which McCubbin discusses excitedly in a letter to Roberts of 1892. There were even occasional opportunities to see naturalist paintings in the flesh, as in the Grosvenor Gallery's Melbourne exhibition of 1887 and that of the Royal Anglo-Australian Society of Artists in 1890. As for Bastien Lepage himself, his influence is clear in the opinions of the artists themselves. McCubbin once wrote to Roberts, I have a small photo of a landscape by Lepage, a hillside, it is so lovely. He was never good with full stops, the prof. The hill is so that you might walk over it. Emmanuel Phillips Fox wrote of his fine qualities. Abby Olsen called him the greatest of all, and Charles Condor said simply he was perfect. And one more thing. One of the small delights of researching my chapter for the catalogue was the accidental discovery of a report of the Mrs. Hyam's juvenile fancy dress ball held in Melbourne at Christmas 1886. The presence on that glittering occasion of not only a French artist, but also three peasants, one non-specific, one French and one from Normandy, suggests that the imagery of French naturalism was not only known in artist circles, but also had a more general currency. Indeed, local Francophilia was such that young Alexander Cahoon even titled a work shown in the National Gallery Students' Exhibition as Rue de Petite Burke. So what has all this to do with the Australian nationalist icons of the 1890s? Well, thanks to its inclusion in Bernard Smith's anthology of primary texts and its reiteration in countless undergraduate essay topics, most students of Australian art history are aware of Sidney Dickinson's 1890 article, What Should Australian Artists Paint? Dickinson claims that, and I quote, Australian life undoubtedly furnishes enough of material inspiration for any artist and enjoins painters to describe the characteristic life of the station and bush and the earnestness, rigour, pathos and heroism of the life that is about them. In this, he is simply reflecting broad social realities. In this period, for the first time in the history of settler Australia, the native-born began to outnumber the immigrants. In other words, for the first time, Australia was identified as home by the majority of the population. We find attitudes such as that of the critic who writes of Louis Bouvelot's water pools at Coleraine as a purely Australian scene, one that we love to look upon 
And why? Because we have gazed upon such scenes as this from our birth. Moreover, the move towards colonial federation and independence from Britain and a burgeoning antiquarian and historical consciousness enhanced by various centenary and jubilee celebrations in the 1880s encouraged attention to distinctively Australian stories and Australian values. In fact, as Lee Asbury showed 20 years ago, by the late 1880s an iconography of the bush had been long established. A host of gallant bushrangers and lonely stockmen, lost children and brave explorers, cunning swagmen and battling selectors appear in various popular culture forms from short stories and ballads to photography and black and white illustration. In painting we find this rural mythology progressively encoded during the 1860s and 1870s by William Strupp, J.H. Kaas, Henricus van den Houten and of course Louis Bouvelot. By 1889, the bushranger subject was sufficiently commonplace for it to be mocked by Livingston Hopkins, while the following year the Australian critic was able to observe more soberly that a strong prejudice prevails in Australia in favour of pictures describing local incidents or characters. But there's an extension of that passage in Dickinson which is less often quoted. As well as focusing on the life of the Australian country, artists should acquire the accomplished methods of a school like the modern French and bring to bear upon them their own individual and national feeling. What is new and significant about the national landscapes of Roberts, McCubbin and Streeton And it could also be said of the well-known scholarship-winning subject pictures of John Longstaff, David Davies and Abby Olsen. That's the Olsen there and a um, a Frank Bramley um, Newland School picture. What distinguishes them from a galloping bush ballad or a pedestrian narrative by J.A. Turner is just this. The integration of frontier mythology into the chromatic and tonal harmonies of naturalism. Into the language of plein air painting into the real landscape settings of Box Hill and Heidelberg and Ringwood and Corowa and the Blue Mountains. For shearing the rams, Roberts set up his easel in the empty wool shed at Brocklesby Station and even paid young Susan Bourne, the model for the tarboy, and her sister sixpence apiece to kick up the dust so he could recapture the atmosphere of shearing time. To paint the hillside road of Bailed Up, He built a platform in a tree so that his viewpoint would be appropriately distant, yet at the same time level with the central action of the picture. McCubbin dug his own grave for a bush burial, as he would later dig a trench in his garden so he could reach the top of the pioneer while remaining outdoors. For fires on Lapstone Tunnel, Streeton spent two months set up on what he described as a shading, shelving sandstone rock perched right up overlooking the railway cutting. Out of this steady viewpoint, this continuous watch on the motif, the landscape setting and the enveloping light, comes a remarkable unity of perception. Whether in Streeton's summer glare with, as he put it, the rock a perfect blazing glory of white, orange, cream and blue streaks here and there where the blast has worked its force. Or in the softer, duskier shades of McCubbin's eastern suburb bushland, 
in what Table Talk called the misty atmosphere so dreamily subduing the leaves and branches of the trees into a general neutrality of colour. Or in Roberts's broad, dun-blonde drench of light on summer grasses. The Australian naturalists' national pictures are artfully constructed combinations of actual place and mythic dramatis personae, observed fact and historical fiction, tonal values and ideological values. And it is this finely balanced synthesis that gives them their powerful, continuing sense of immediacy, of here and now presentness, and hence their importance in the definition of Australian identity, even to this day. Thank you.